Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. I'm writing this in Colorado, although I think I'll be back in Michigan by the time I record it, which turns out to be the case. I was not really productive that morning, even though, you know, possible. Just too much text to get through. Anyway, today we continue working our way through the Aeneid, We are up to book nine, and the war is beginning. The new war, not the Trojan War that led to Aeneas and his merry band of refugees arriving in Italy. But before I get to that, I do want to state again that I am working from the Fitzgerald translation. Juno is still meddling in the lives of humans. This time, she sends Iris down to tell Turnus that Aeneas has left the Trojan camp largely unguarded. Now is the perfect time to attack. So, attack Turnus and his army do. But the Trojans refuse to leave the fortress that they've built. They'd rather stand and defend the fortress than go and fight out in the open plain, which gives us a setting similar to what we see in the Iliad. The Trojans have the city, if you will, and their enemy is out in the open. Turnus is furious that the Trojans refuse to come out and fight. He tries attacking the fortress, but when that doesn't work, he turns around and sees the Trojan ships. He urges his men to set the ships on fire, which they do. And then Virgil pauses in this war story to tell us another story. You see, these ships are magical. Back when he was in need of some ships, Sibylle, that ancient earth goddess, gave Aeneas some sacred trees, and she also asked Jupiter to keep the ships built out of these trees safe from harm. It is helpful to be the son of Venus, isn't it? Kind of explains how Aeneas's entire fleet survived the storm that led them to landing at Carthage. Anyway, Jupiter says that he'll turn the ships into sea nymphs, mermaids, if you will, ship mermaids. Isn't Greco-Roman mythology fun? The reason Virgil tells us the story is that clearly the ships are now in danger, so Jupiter keeps his promise and turns the ships into mermaids, and they swim away instead of burning down. No ships were harmed in the making of this epic. The Rutulians, Turnus's army, are understandably shook by this transformation, but Turnus points out that they've still kind of achieved their goal. The Trojans are still now shipless. It's just a matter of time before the Trojans are defeated and Turnus can get back to his previously scheduled program of marrying Lavinia, who we still have yet to hear from. While all this is happening, the Trojans increase the security around their gates and walls. Nissus is posted at one of the gates, and he's not so keen on this plan to just stand guard. He tells Euryalus that he'd like to sneak out and look for Aeneas. Euryalus thinks this is a great plan and asks if he can come along. Nissus tells the younger man that it's too dangerous, and he doesn't want to be the one to have to tell Euryalus's mother that her son is dead. Euryalus is unmoved by this and insists on coming along. The Trojan leaders hold a midnight meeting. Nissus speaks up with his idea, and he and Euryalus volunteer to go. Euryalus asks the other men to take care of his mother, and then they all get a little teary-eyed and, I don't know, verklumped, thinking of their dear old mothers. Ascanius gives Nissus and Euryalus messages for his dad, but Virgil goes right ahead and tells us that the wind will scatter them unheard. The two sneak out through the Rutulian camp. And since the Rutilians are all asleep, they take the chance to stop and kill several of them before continuing on their actual mission, which is to find Aeneas. 
Euryalus puts on Messapus's helmet as they sneak away. They are only moderately successful. Vulcans, one of the Rutulian leaders, sees them and calls out, asking why they are on patrol and where they are going. You know, the helmet makes him think that they're Rutulians. The two Trojans respond by running away into the woods, which makes Vulcans realize that they are not actually Rutulians. It is only after reaching Latinus's territory that Nissus realizes that Euryalus is no longer by his side. He retraces his steps until he finds Euryalus surrounded by the Rutulians. What should he do? If Nissus flees, Euryalus will surely be killed. If he stays, they both might be killed. Can you guess what she opts for? The latter, of course. Euryalus is his bestie. You can't just leave him to die. Can you guess the outcome? They both die, of course, but not before Nissus kills Vulcans, too. The Rutilians carry Vulcans back to their camp, and then they display the heads of Nissus and Euryalus on pikes, which is how Euryalus's mother knows for certain that her son is dead, leading to a heartbreaking bit of poetry describing her grief. And you'd think that's the end of this book, but no, that's only the first half of it. Fitzgerald gives each book a title, like some authors give chapters titles. He calls this one A Night Sortie, A Day Assault. We've had the night sortie, but we still have to cover the following day assault. In the first half, we saw the Trojans go on the offensive. Now it's the Rutulians' turn. Virgil begins by asking the muse Calliope to help him sing of all the bloody deaths that are to come. And sing of bloody deaths Virgil goes on to do. Turnus and his men attack, and several of them die. Not Turnus, of course. That will come later. Um, sorry, 2,000-year-old spoiler alert? Admittedly, there are deaths on both sides. It's all quite detailed. I'll let you read it yourself. In addition to all the killing, the Rutilians take part in some good old-fashioned taunting, which just makes me think of Monty Python. Anyway, Ascanius rolls his eyes at the insults and shoots the primary taunter. The gods are, of course, watching all of this happen, and Apollo can't help but commend Ascanius for an excellent shot. But Apollo also realizes that if Ascanius gets killed in action, that will throw a wrench in the whole founding of a line of great leaders thing. So Apollo disguises himself as a Trojan named Butes and convinces the Trojans that Ascanius should withdraw from the battle, which he does. Turnus then has this sort of berserk Aristia and kills a whole bunch of Trojans with a little help from Juno. Eventually, the Trojans manage to turn the tide back in their favor, in part because Jupiter sends Iris down to tell Turnus that it's time to run away. Run away, Turnus does, by jumping into the Tiber and floating down the river to where his men are waiting. And that is where Book Nine ends. The first thing that stands out to me in this book is, well, the way it begins. <laughs> when Juno first stirs up trouble, she sends Electo, a fury, a terrifying being. But this time she sends Iris. 
Now, Iris is the messenger from the gods. That's why her symbol is the rainbow arching from the sky to the land. So Iris is a logical choice for Juno to send a message to Turnus, but she is the complete opposite of Electo. And when Electo goes to Turnus, she has to take on her true form to scare him into action. So the fact that that has already happened, is that maybe why Juno figures she now can use a softer touch? He's already been spurred to action, so now she can just send gentle messages through Iris. Turnus is already set for war, right? So now she can send a rainbow to talk to him. Of course, sending Iris at the start of the book does make a lovely poetic through line for when Iris appears at the end of the book. Iris starts the fighting at the beginning of the book and ends the fighting at the end of the book. It's, it, is, it is poetic. We can definitely grant Virgil that, right? <laughs> Virgil was an excellent poet. The other thing that I want to touch on in this book, I am sure did not come through very clearly in my summary. I want to talk about Nyssus and Euryalus. They are most definitely friends, but as you read the text, they appear to be more than that. Virgil speaks of their love. In some sections, it appears to be platonic, but there are other places where their relationship seems to be quite romantic, and that makes their deaths even more touching. Nissus knows that if he tries to save Euryalus, he might fall, but he loves him, and he does fail, and they die together, which, I mean, isn't that how beautiful, tragic love stories are supposed to go? Romeo and Juliet and all that, right? Except they were on the same side, Euryalus and Nissus. Anyway, then maybe it's more like Antony and Cleopatra, which also puts us into the right uh, right period of history for, <laughs> for, for when this text was written. Different times in which the texts were written, but you know what I mean. Antony and Cleopatra led to Augustus being Caesar, which is how Virgil wound up writing this epic. I digress significantly. Back to my final point, the mermaid ship sea nymphs. <laughs> there are a lot of transformations in Greco-Roman mythology. If I remember my episode schedule correctly, we will be covering Ovid's Metamorphoses as our next epic, and that's all about transformations. Think about the title, right? What I find interesting about this particular story is that the ship's aren't nymphs who become ships and are returned to their true form. They are sacred trees who are made into ships and then become nymphs when they have reached their final destination. So while Odysseus loses his entire fleet because, you know, he just has normal boats, Aeneas's fleet is protected by Jupiter and the fact that his ships were made out of these sacred trees. Turnus thinks he now has the upper hand, but we know that the transformation of the ships means that Aeneas doesn't have anywhere else that he needs to go. So what do you think of this book in particular or of the epic so far? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Find me on Patreon as triumvirclio should you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we will start book three of the Bibliotheca, so book three, chapter one. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. 
And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.